0: This is episode 78 with one of the top ultramarathon coaches in the country and the director of coaching for Carmichael Training Systems, Mr. Jason Koop. Here we are again, everyone. Welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm fresh off a workout, so I'm feeling a little fatigued. A little sore my throat is a little dry from all that hard breathing on the track but you know what I love this feeling it's such a great reminder that you're alive and even though I'm feeling a little bit less than stellar right now it's one of the aspects of running that I absolutely love so okay before I start writing love letters to running (laughs) I want to talk more about today's episode so you know what you're getting into I'm speaking with Jason Koop, who's been coaching for almost 20 years now, and he now works with some of the country's top trail ultramarathon runners, folks like Dakota Jones, Timothy Olson, Missy Gosney, and many others. And what we're going to talk about is a whole wide range of topics today from progression runs, how to think about time off from running, and how runners are uniquely impacted by environmental damage. But before we dive in, I want to thank Sammy for leaving me a really thoughtful review of the podcast on iTunes, saying this is easily his favorite running podcast and who just ran his first marathon injury-free using the advice here on the podcast and also on the Strength Running website. Well, Sammy, it's my pleasure to have made a small contribution to your running, and thank you so much for the review. It means a lot. I also want to thank Inside Tracker for doing something special for strength running podcast listeners this month only. This isn't available forever, only until the end of November, so act fast. But they created a special discount code that's going to save you $200 on the ultimate tier of their blood test. This is a test that I got for myself, and I really loved everything about it from how easy it was, how thorough the testing was, and how well the Inside Tracker system. Helped me determine what dietary or lifestyle or exercise interventions I could implement in my life that would further improve upon my results. And that's really what I love about them. They don't just tell you what's wrong with your blood values, they tell you how to fix it. So this code is only available until the end of November, like I mentioned. And that code is strength run special. There's no spaces, it's just three words together strength run special, and it's not case sensitive. So I hope you'll take advantage of the $200 in savings on their ultimate package, and I'd love to hear how you use this service to improve your running. Okay guys, let's get started with my conversation with Jason. If you're an aspiring ultra runner, an aspiring coach, or just a big running nerd, you're gonna really love this episode. Please welcome Mr. Jason Coop. Now I wanna talk about an article that you wrote recently uh, it was called the best change for your ultra marathon training and you advise runners to basically build a bigger foundation of fitness so that they don't have as many wild swings throughout the year from being in top shape to being kind of out of shape you know after a recovery period and you know this is something that I've been trying to say for years, but you did it so much more eloquently than I ever could. Can you talk more about this idea and how runners can implement it a little bit more in their training?
1: Yeah, and so, so it's, well, the fact that it's more eloquent, I'm not gonna take a lot of credit for I have a lot, I have a lot of help with those articles. Um, but uh, it's really based off of a coaching practice that, that, that I've used for years. And I wouldn't phrase it so much as Runners need to build and and hold on to this big, you know, aerobic base or anything like that because that happens over many many months and years of training But but really the way that I like to position it uh, for my athletes is I don't like them to get any more than about 10% off of their peak fitness at any point in the year and You'd be surprised how surprisingly little training it actually takes to uh, to to accomplish that. And you know, for, fortunately, you know, one of the, one of the things that um, that I have kind of set up within within my coaching practice here and in the coaching practice that we use at CTS is is we we look at all the training that kind of comes across the wire with uh, uh, with our athletes. And when that's the case, you can tell, you can paint very good pictures on where the athlete is, just in terms of their overall, you know, fitness and performance capabilities. Even if they're not doing, you know, workouts and things like that, you can just look at the training and and, and tell. And as long as they're within that 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 ten percent bandwidth from the best that they've ever could perform at whatever distance, you can, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what distance you pick: half marathon, marathon. Even if you wanted to put it down on a physiological scale, like their VO2 max or their you know pace at lactate threshold or something like that, as long as they're within that that 10% bandwidth from the very best they could be to the worst that they could be throughout you know the course of a year, if you keep it within that 10%, it's actually it's actually remarkably easy to get them from that 90% back up to 100% and 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 then above and really one of the functional advantages that it provides is it enables you uh, enables an athlete and me as a coach to kind of compress the time frame that's necessary to get that athlete into the in, into the best shape and so from a practical standpoint what we're doing is is we're allowing athletes to rest but we're making sure that they maintain some kind of base level of Training and fitness and things like that and we're essentially it's essentially a lack uh, a success by like a failure proposition we're just trying to make sure that they don't fall out the face of the earth for Two or three months at a time because that's when they really kind of get into the most trouble
0: Yeah, this reminds me very much of the idea that it's much easier to maintain your fitness than it is to build your fitness so if you can just do the work necessary to maintain most of what you've built over the course of whether that's a training cycle or or even, you know, five years of training, then you're gonna be in a much better position. Uh, now, Jason, how do you measure that 10%? Is this kind of a 10% off of their PR in a certain event or, or how does that work?
1: Yeah, so once again, you gotta be really in tune with, the training that is coming across the wire, the training that, that that the athlete is kind of posting, and whatever you know, whatever system that you're used to 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 marking it as, we're, we're not. I, I would say we're not like field testing athletes, or we're not having them go through, you know, a lactate threshold test or even race or anything like that every month out of the year to try to determine if this ten, if this 10% is actually uh, is actually a, a, eclipsed or not. Um, so I can't offer you a, you know, here's the really simple solution to figuring out if you're, you know, 10% off or 8% off or 15% off or anything like that. It's really, it's really looking at kind of the combination of training, how much volume they're doing, what their paces are generally like, what kind of intensity they're running on, you know, various different types of train and things like that. And, and the point with that is is it's 10%, not 2% and not 30%, right? So it's a little bit, but not a lot. And that's the point that I try to convey to my athletes, is that it's okay to take a step back, and it's totally healthy to take a step back and lose a little bit of that peak fitness. You, You want that in order to grow year after year after year. But what you want to make sure that you're you're not doing is that you're letting that 10% dip into 20 or 30% because then you just spend so much time the next year just getting back to where the 10% actually should have been.
0: This reminds me of what my college cross-country coach used to tell us. He used to say that, you know, if you're not going to run indoor and outdoor track, then I don't want you on my cross-country team, because running is not a single-season sport. It's really a lifestyle, and if you want to improve and get better and really see success as a runner, it, you know, you have to just continually maintain and build your fitness and you're definitely right you know I, i see a lot of runners who you know they'll take the winter off from running and it might be three four months away from running at all and you know then they're wondering why you know every year they have trouble reaching their marathon goal for example that happens in the fall and i just see this as an example of that they're letting themselves lose so much fitness during that recovery period, which really goes kind of beyond what a recovery period should do. And and really, it's like almost a detraining period at that point. Um, One of my questions for you was, you know, during this period where, you know, let's say they had a goal race, and now they're going to rest or then have a couple easy weeks. Do you have workouts that you like to have these athletes do to maintain their fitness? Or is it just, you know, let's do some easy running and you know, as long as we don't do this for too long, you're probably not going to get more than 10% detrained.
1: Well, so so first off, you hit on uh, uh, some, something that I'm something that I'm really passionate about, and that always kind of irks me. And this is this concept of maintaining your fitness, and I, I can tell you unequivocally that in my 20-year coaching career of working with endurance athletes that I have never not once had an athlete come to me with the goal of maintaining their fitness. Nobody has ever said that to me. Nobody has ever said, Jason Coop, I want you to maintain where I'm currently at. So, the, the lens that I look at this transition phase through, and that's what most people would refer to this as, is you're not necessarily trying to maintain fitness, but you're trying to improve other aspects. You're trying to improve their recovery. You're trying to improve their readiness. Sometimes you're trying to improve or regenerate their motivation. But I don't look at it as a, as a, as, as a maintenance phase, which you hear uh, commonly in a lot of uh, uh, coaching and, and training talk. So to answer your question about do I give them certain workouts or things like that? Typically, no. Typically, I'm just having them do endurance week or endurance work, and uh, maybe a few strides here and there. Um, but I find that more often than not, when I set up this kind of down period for athletes, when um, uh, after they've completed you know the big goal race, big goal training, and, and, and things like that. That they're getting in some sort of, you know, ad hoc intensity just by running on the trails, right? And that's a little bit of the nature of the athletes that I that I work with versus a lot of road athletes. So they're getting some undulation in the intensity just as a natural byproduct of the of the of the, of the terrain that they're running on, and that typically does the uh, d- does the trick of keeping that intensity balance kind of in check.
0: So it sounds like the way you think about this is more that you allow a certain amount of detraining, knowing that you're never really going to be able to maintain peak fitness. And I think that's a a really key thing for a lot of people to hear is that you know when you're peak marathon ready or peak 100 mile trail race ready, that's not a fitness that you can maintain for a long period of time. And you know I, I get a lot of emails from runners who say. You know, I just ran my best marathon and you know, I want to continue my success with a race in two or three weeks. And, you know, it sounds like we're we're kind of talking about the same thing in different ways, and that, you know, I, I want to allow some recovery and detraining after a goal race, but not so much, and, and it sounds very similar to that ten percent level that you have. Um, and it's just basically more of an allowable amount of detraining. Did I did yeah. I get that right?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that's good vocabulary to use an allowable amount of, of, of detraining. training um, I always use the, when we're not talking like training specifically, if we're just kind of in like lay publications or I'm trying to communicate it to an athlete, a lot of times I'll use the analogy that your, your, your fitness should look like a good stock chart. The general trend line should be up. There are going to be periods of, down and maybe even a retraction by, you know, 10% or, or whatever. But over the course of several months and years, if you're doing a good job, you're putting in the work, you've got smart training, the general trend line of fitness should continue to go upwards.
0: I love that stock market analogy, because it, it really just goes to show that training has to be cyclical, there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows. But as long as those highs keep inching upward, and the detraining that you experience during the lows isn't substantial and that you know maybe even the lows inch up over a long enough period of time that's what progress is and that's really what progression is when you know we talk about fitness and getting faster and all that um Let me ask you kind of a more broad picture question about your coaching. Do you have a formal coaching philosophy? Uh, Because we've talked a lot about how you think about training runners. And I'd love to maybe take a step back and really think about, you know, holistically, how does Jason Coop think about improving the performance of his athletes?
1: Uh, Well, interestingly enough, I think of performance second or third or fourth when i'm first starting to work with an athlete i mean i I, when i first start to work with athletes i i I take the position that i have to care for them as a person first and then as an athlete second to just start just just to start the relationship and um a, a, a really crystal example of that is whenever i take on I, I, I do not ask them, okay, what are you training for to like start out the conversation? I always start out the conversation with a, with a really simple question and that's just how can I help period? Not how can I help you in your races? Not how can I help your fitness? Not how can I help your confidence? Not how can I help your running? Just how can I help? Now, obviously they're coming to me because they want, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, goal race or, you know, they've got something kind of on the calendar or whatever. But, but, but by framing it like that, um, I'm, I'm starting the relationship off and putting this athlete as a person first and, and, and then as an athlete and, and things like that kind of along, uh, along the line. So that's the first part of it is the care for care for an athlete as a person first and as an athlete a little bit further down the line. And the second part of the coaching philosophy that I really hinge on, and this is what most people are more interested in because it has to do with the, the training and how it kind of manifests itself, is uh, I, I really focus on developing the aerobic engine to its maximum capacity. And sure, there's you there's know, nutrition considerations. And sure, I want to make sure that they're tough and that they can handle kind of the psychological battles, especially at the elite level and things like that. But that the pinnacle of everything is who's got the biggest engine, you know, and how well can they use it, you know. So that's what I mean by developing it to its full, to, to its fullest potential. I I steer a lot of my uh, a lot of my coaching and a lot of the kind of the philosophy that I put behind what I'm having athletes do at any one point in time with that kind of thing in mind that I'm trying to maximize their aerobic potential of their cardiovascular system first and foremost.
0: That sounds very similar to uh, a quote that I actually just used on the podcast recently from University of Colorado at Boulder cross-country coach Mark Wetmore. When asked about his secret weapon, he said, if we don't have any secret weapons, it's all about the patient development of the aerobic metabolism. And, you know, it's just such a, a classic uh, but very instructive line. Um, now, w- when you say, you know, you're, you're very much focused on the aerobic development, what does that look like in practice? How would I know from, say, looking at an a- an athlete that you're working with that you are focusing on kind of general endurance?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Is uh, we, we uh, just a couple of months ago we brought on a new batch of coaches and I I took I took them through this exact example because one of the things that we have them develop is their own coaching philosophy, right? And that's that's fluid, right? You don't have to like etch it in marble or anything like that. Um, but I kinda took them through what the practical ramifications of that philosophy that I just, um, uh, that I just described to you. And, and on the aerobic side, what it means is, is the, the, or one of the things, I don't wanna pigeonhole it into one specific thing, but one of the things uh, that, that, that kinda emanates from that develop the aerobic system first just has to do with some of the architecture that goes into any one particular uh, particular workout. And so the example I gave is a high intensity interval workout where you can either do one minute on, one minute off, one minute on, one minute off, one minute on, one minute off. So let's say you do that for 15 minutes, right? So 15 minutes of workload. You You can either have that 15 minutes of workload be in that one on, one off fashion, or you can choose to do five by three minutes same same amount of workload right 15 minutes of workload at kind of maximum intensity but when you kind of go back into the research and you see how that athlete actually responds to that workload their aerobic system is developed more from the five by three workout they might have more speed from one minute on one minute off but from a cardiovascular standpoint it's developed more in the latter example that i gave so when i'm so that's just a kind of a microcosm of what i do when i'm looking at the proposition of what workouts to place on the calendar and when and how those workouts are actually going to be designed i'm going to design them and skew them in a way that kind of puts that that development of the cardiovascular engine as the kind of the, the, the pinnacle of things.
0: Would you call yourself a, a coach that advocates for high mileage or not?
1: Oh, man, that's always such a loaded question. I know. I <laughs> um, love it. <laughs> well, OK, so, but so I'm going to answer since we since we just went through primary season a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to answer that that question like a politician uh, to take it to take advantage of the timing of this not answer the question at all and it and just talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, so I'm more of an advocate for maximizing the workload, not necessarily the 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 volume or the mileage like like you talked about. And what I mean by workload is the amount of time and the amount of intensity. And you can define that by liters of oxygen over you know, over a four week period or one day period or whatever period you want to measure. You can define that by the amount of the amount of kilojoules that are done by that particular workload. But that is certainly a lens, that workload lens, maximizing the, the total amount of workload that I look at coaching through whenever I'm developing things for athletes.
0: So when you say maximizing the workload, does that mean making the workload, uh, more in volume or more intense? How how does that? Uh, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, so that's the critical question right volume or intensity you have to look at both You can't compartmentalize right either one of them into any into into any uh, You can't you can't compartmentalize them um, But because I've got that work because I've got that workload lens literally what I'm looking at is is if I want the intensity to be, let's just describe it however we want I want it to be near VO2 max, right? 90% of VO2 max or whatever. I would look at a workout architecture that maximizes the workload at that specific intensity versus I just want to make the workout fast or hard or, or whatever, but that's the sequence of events that I'm typically going through when I'm putting together workouts for my athletes it's what intensity do I want them to perform this at to perform this at how do I maximize the the time that they spend at that intensity not only during that one particular session but during the entire phase and everything just kind of flows from there
0: now let's talk about an aerobic workout that uh that you don't really like (laughs) the other day on twitter you mentioned that you don't really like progression runs can you talk more about that and, and why you're not such a big fan of these types of workouts?
1: Yeah, so time and place for it. I'll add the caveat right there that, um, that, that I do feel that there is the time and place for those workouts, but it really goes back to this workload philosophy um, that, that, uh, that I was just describing. I do not generally like progression runs because I can always design a workout mile for mile such that it has a higher total workload if I put the harder workouts at the beginning. And so just to, as, a, as a really quick example of that, and this kind of trivializes progression runs, but I think that most people kind of understand that concept. If I want an athlete to do four miles at a tempo pace, and let's say their tempo paces, or let's just say I wanted them to do a tempo run, right? And their tempo paces, seven-minute miles. I can either put those seven-minute miles at the end of the workout, so in a progression run fashion, or I can put it at the beginning of the run uh, in a traditional workout type of fashion. What happens if you put it at the end of the run is that the athlete is going into that section where they need to run their tempo pace in a pre fatigue state. And that's either going to result in one or both, or one or two or both uh, things happening. Either they're going to do that tempo portion slower, or they're going to do less volume, less miles at that same intensity. So by consequence, if you put it at the beginning, they're either going to do that section of the run, if you say it's four miles or five miles or whatever, either slightly faster than they would at the end, or they can do more total volume at that intensity. So, mile for mile, you're always going to be able to maximize the workload if you are doing the hard parts of it in a non fatigued or in a, in, in a fresh state versus a fatigued state. And, that, and that's a pretty simple. You know, that, that's, I think that that's a really simple example of a workout that's kind of gone awry. Like, I don't feel that a lot of coaches, when they prescribe progression runs, they realize that they are making that compromise. They're compromising the total amount of workload that they can achieve in that one particular day for something else. I want to learn to run when I'm tired is the, is the stereotypical excuse. But I don't, I don't think a lot, of people, a lot of people realize that and they just kind of blindly do or blindly prescribe progression runs just because it's done a lot.
0: But isn't some of the reasons why you don't like a progression run the same reasons why a progression run can be valuable? So for example, you might be training for a longer race where running a certain pace on tired legs is what you're going to experience on the race. So isn't a certain amount of pre-fatigue uh, you know if you want to call it pre-fatigue or running on tired legs or however you want to label it Isn't that part of what makes this workout? Sometimes very race specific
1: well, and that's why you would do it is if you're trying to Incorporate some sort of race specificity into the training program but what you what you need to realize and what athletes and coaches need to realize when they're doing that is they're doing that at the expense of the total workload that could be achieved. Because you can't come to me and say that you're going to be able to run four miles faster at the end of a run versus four miles faster at the beginning of the run. Right.
0: Right? Isn't, isn't that sometimes so it,
1: preferable? Well, it, it depends. It would be preferable if the this, this specific thing that you wanted to get out of the workout to be to teach the athlete how to run on tired legs, at the expense of the potential development that you would get from the aerobic system. I see. That that would be that would be a case scenario to use it. But if you're saying this is the best way to develop the aerobic system, that would be a, that would be a failure of workout architecture.
0: Okay. Now do you also look at a progression run as a type of workout that could be a bridge between someone who's not used to doing any harder workouts to someone who's okay going to start getting into more challenging faster training sessions um and doing a maybe short progression run is a way to do some faster running without making it so challenging
1: Yeah okay see I've heard that I've heard that uh, rationale used before if i'm teaching somebody how to run at, partic- at a certain intensity right using it as a bridge to more formalized intensity i want them to do that in the least fatig- the least fatigued most benign state possible like I don't want to pre-fatigue them and then have them run an intensity that they're not used to running. like that logically doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
0: Well, I think the idea is to
1: do it when you know
0: you're not running very high intensity and you're also not doing it for a long period of time. It's just yeah, but us. I would
1: rather I would rather have it. so if I'm teaching somebody to do a 20 minute tempo run who's never done a tempo run before, and I know that they could probably do 40 minutes at that tempo intensity, right? I would rather have them warm up for 15 minutes, do 20 minutes at an intensity that they think that they can hold for 40 minutes, and then go cool down as a mechanism to teach them how to do the intensity versus go run for 40 minutes and do the last 20 minutes at a tempo intensity. Like I just think that you're to teach somebody who has never run that intensity or to provide a bridge, which is the vocabulary a lot of people use, I would rather do that in the most simple way possible. I think I think progression runs are actually more, are actually more beneficial for more experienced athletes Ooh, typically. That's a really that interesting ball. point. Why do you think that? Just just because you're asking somebody to do the hardest part of the workout when they're the most fatigued. That's an advanced
0: concept. How about um, you know I. I do use tempo runs in in my training plans, uh, depending on the athlete. One of the things that I really like about a progression is that it really develops a certain amount of pace control. Because I think a lot of runners either are going to run tempo pace or not. You know, there's if, most in my experience, a lot of runners have trouble gradually ratcheting down the pace, and I like to see how runners split a progression run because it tells me how in control of a certain pace they are and how well they can feel a certain pace. So there's a, a little bit of intuition involved. And for me, it's, it's a way of almost testing a runner just to see you know whether or not I can give them workouts by perceived effort or by feel or if I need to be a little bit more prescriptive.
1: Well, I can see that there's some that there's some utility in that, um, but the point that I always try to make, and I'll kind of take this from our, from a coaching mentor standpoint, right? As if you were proposing this to me as a plausible way to design a workout for some athlete that you're working with, I'll say as long as you understand that you're that you're using a progression run or anything, right? You call it whatever you want to, that you're using that run in this case to accomplish this specific goal at the expense of designing a workout where the specific workload can be more effective. Great. But you have to make sure that that athlete is going to benefit more from that tactical piece that you teach from that being able to feel it out piece that you're trying to teach versus just improving just improving not that they're not going to improve underneath the progression run but you can't tell me that you are going to maximize the actual workload part of it underneath that condition
0: right that's almost like a separate goal Um, Let's let's transition a little bit and talk more about kind of your your arc of your coaching career is one of the questions I love asking coaches is, you know, is there anything about running or coaching that you might have changed your mind about over the last couple years or five years or 10 years, you know, maybe something that you do now that you never did when you first started coaching or vice versa?
1: Well, a couple of things really stick out in my mind. The first one is just communication. You know, um, I have, just to give you and your listeners a little bit of context, um, I've coached, you know, 10 athletes at a time, 20 athletes at a time, 200 athletes at a time, you, you name it. I've had that whole bandwidth of how to how to organize the kind of the athlete pool that uh, that, that I work with and over the course of years i've just settled on i need to work with between 20 and 30 athletes that's what strikes the right balance between me coaching enough so that i can kind of focus on honing my craft and giving each athlete enough individualized attention i just can't i just can't do it over Uh, over, over, you know, 30 or maybe 30 athletes is probably about the the tops that I would ever work with right now. And that's, and that's because I really value the communication loop between coach and athlete. Um, I look at every single training file that comes across my desk and some of them get a lot of commentary and some of them get a little bit of commentary and some of them get, text message back or a full dissertation or whatever but i've just valued that communication piece a whole lot more um as i have gone on in my coaching career it's because i found it makes a big difference you know uh, when i was coaching a lot of athletes and i didn't have a lot of communication i i was not delivering the best you know the best service to my athletes the best coaching that uh, that they could get so that's that's the first thing is the communication piece and the second piece of it is re- it really has to do with just the specificity of running. Um, you know, and this is probably an area given here. Podcast is called the Strength Runner Podcast, um, where we might actually have a, have a little bit of disagreement. You know, I, I, I came from a collegiate uh, running background and uh, I, was re- I was really fortunate to kind of observe a lot of you know, really great coaches while uh, while I was a collegiate athlete, including Clyde Hart over at Baylor, who worked with Michael Johnson during their uh, 1996 Olympic run and 2000 Olympic run, things like that. Um, but, But I came into coaching kind of with that eye. And one of the things that was kind of de facto that I always did was whenever I had an athlete, it's here's your running program, here's your strength training program, and uh, here's your form program, right? We do something to kind of improve their, their, their biomechanics. And just over the course of, you know, many years of, of, of coaching and kind of developing that practice is I put much, much, much more of the spotlight on the running and the training part of it. And, and especially with ultramarathon runners, which I'm uh, predominantly working with right now, there's far less or in, or in a lot of cases, not at all of the spotlight on the form piece or any sort of strength component. So that, that's just a big change that I've made. And some of that has to do with just the demographic of athletes that I'm working with. But a lot of it just has to do with what I've, what I've observed I've been able to you know do with my athletes.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know if we'd have much disagreement, despite this being the Strength Running Podcast. Uh, (laughs) You know, we are runners. We have to focus on running first. And no amount of strength training is going to make you into a good runner. You have to put in the running to make that happen. I like to tell my runners that, you know, if you plant potatoes, you can't expect to harvest carrots. You can't just lift weights and then expect to be a good marathoner. It doesn't work yeah. like
1: that. You know, I get so I get asked that. So that in the uh, in the book that I wrote, I, cre- I created a little sidebar where I kind of dismissed uh, uh, where I kind of dismissed strength training, and uh, may- maybe that maybe I should have elaborated on that a little bit more. But I get asked about that a lot when um, uh, when I do uh, training presentations and things like that because it's always a source of controversy. So the first thing I do, I ask if there's any, if there are any personal trainers in the room just to see who I'm going to offend or who I'm not going to offend. Um, but yeah, I know. But the second thing, the, the second thing I ask is I ask everybody to raise their hands and pick a training modality. If you only had one training modality that you could use to train for your next whatever group I'm talking to, marathon, ultra marathon. 5k whatever if you only had one training modality to pick from which one would you pick raise your hands if you pick Strength training raise your hands if you pick cross training raise your hands if you pick yoga raise your hands if you pick running And of course everybody raises their hands for running, right? I mean if you only had one thing to do you would choose to run and so I use that as an illustrative point kind of to your analogy of of potatoes and carrots it, or pick your vegetable it doesn't okay, matter pick your so you I use that as is if you if you're doing a running race you better spend a whole lot of time running and that should be your primary focus
0: yes I, I always like to call uh, strength training supplemental training it supplements your running it is there to make your running better. It is not there to take the place of running, or to really do anything that running is supposed to do for you. You're not going to gain endurance in the weight room. Uh, you know, you're not going to improve your VO2 max really in the weight room. And so, you know, most of the aspects of success in running, however you measure that, you get from running. And of course, there's really no way around that. Um, Jason, let's let's take a huge left turn here and talk about No Car November. And <laughs> you're you're giving up driving all together during the month of November. Why is that?
1: That's uh, a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm really fortunate that, um, that, I, that I get to work with athletes that are just incredibly inspirational to me. And um, a, a few years ago, um, I was having this uh, conversation with, with somebody who I, I don't work with on a daily basis, but he and I have, have worked together in the past and we, have, and we have a great friendship and that's Dean Carnassus. And um, he had just mentioned to me that, you know, he doesn't own a car anymore and I asked why. And he's like, well, part of it is I don't need one, but the other part of it is, is I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I don't feel like I need to put those carbon emissions in the air. And this is somebody who travels around the world. You know, I mean, he, it's not like you know, it's in, it's not like it's convenient for him to uh, to not have a car. He is definitely mobile, but he made a, a conscientious decision to uh, to to give up his car forever. He doesn't own one. It's not one in his garage. In fact, that's how I noticed it. Actually, I went over to his house. I went to his garage, and I'm like, I thought you had a I thought because he had a car previous to this. It's like where'd your car go? He's like, I don't have one anymore. So that's kind of the first bit of it that that nod at me. The second piece, and this is what kind of tipped me over the edge, is another one of the athletes that I work with, uh, Dakota Jones. Um, He, this year, was training for the Pikes Peak Marathon, and um, he let me know beforehand. He's like, hey, this is what I want to do before the Pikes Peak Marathon is I'm going to ride my bike from Silverton to Colorado Springs, which is where the Pikes Peak Marathon is, and I'm going to raise money for Protect Our Winners Yeah. Dakota wants to win the race. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's kind of his first and foremost goal. He's a competitive athlete. And so the first thing I told him is like, listen, if you want to win the Pikes Peak Marathon, that's a terrible idea. Like if you're, if you're riding your bike and go camping on the side of the road for, you know, four or five days, you know, within a couple of weeks of, of, of trying to win one of the more competitive, you know, trail marathons uh, in the, in the entire world that, that exercise of riding your bike is counterproductive to you winning this race, and he just said, "I don't care." He's like, I, "I'm going to go out and I'm going to put out my best effort during the race, and you know, if I lose, you know, and if I can blame part of it on 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 riding the bike, I'm 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 okay with that because this is this is really important to me. I want to kind of make a statement, and so he so he did just that. He rode his bike. He rode his bike to my house. Um, stayed with, stayed with, uh, stayed with me for, you know, the week before the race, did a little bit of training, uh, in advance and, uh, it was, it was really hard for him. he, I mean, he, he got to my house pretty freaking tired from, you know, riding his loaded up cyclocross, uh, aluminum, uh, LeMond bike, uh, for several hours a day for, for four days. So he got to my house pretty deteriorated, but he won the race anyway and set the downhill record kind of in route. And then he rode his bike home can, can rested on sunday i got to you know we got to hang out for a day and uh he rode his bike all the way back to all the way back to trango so it, so anyway that really kind of stuck with me just because it, it kind of encapsulated everything you know he's you know incredible inspiring individual who wanted to do this thing he had obviously performance goals but he realized that there's a, a kind of a bigger place in this world uh, uh aside from you know will it winning a silly little uh, uh, trail uh, Trail Marathon in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and th- that just kind of stuck with me. So I said, "Listen, you guys have inspired me enough. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give up my car for the month of November, and maybe even beyond that if I could figure out how to how to how to make it work." And so it really was a byproduct of just these these two athletes really just got, uh, doing things that really resonated with me, and I wanted to reciprocate that.
0: It's great how inspiration is, is such a Self reinforcing phenomenon where someone can inspire someone else, and that person goes on to inspire two other people, and it's this wonderful cascading effect. Now, I asked you about this because there's been a lot of talk this year in particular about how the running community is going to be quite adversely affected by climate change. You know, we're seeing uh, all the wildfires just so severe in california right now in colorado as well you know i did a half marathon out in fort collins uh in september and you know you're just smelling smoke at the starting line it was just kind of surreal experience where you know you kind of think these fires are are off somewhere else but you know you go to travel for a race and you see the effects of them and you know i wanted to ask you what do you do you think that the running community should be more vocal about how our sport will be impacted by climate change in the years ahead?
1: Well, I, I, I'm, I, I'll, I'm just going to, once again, not answer your question. I'm going to answer the question I want to answer. I'm going to take this just from a coaching standpoint, because that's my profession. That's how I earn a living. I 100% absolutely think that, particularly athletes with a big platform, uh, but also, um, uh, also coaches and brands that kind of earn their keep in the outdoor space need to do their job to protect it, and and part of their job of of protecting the outdoor space is is doing the right things and being a voice for climate change. Um, I, I think it's it, I think it's kind of inherent with what I do as a coach and what athletes do as athletes, that they're dependent on the land that they run on and the air that they breathe. And if they want to continue to run on the land that they run on and breathe the air that they breathe, it does take a collective voice to, 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 to kind of make sure that that's maintained. And that Advocacy can you know take a lot of forms. You know, Dakota rode his bike and you know raise some money, but you can also take personal action. You know, giving up your car, eating less, you know, uh, industrialized meat, or kind of whatever whatever you want to do. But I do think that the community as a whole, and particularly the bigger stakeholders in in, in the community, and I'd, I would put myself in this uh, in this category as a bigger stakeholder within the community. We need to we need to kind of police ourselves in that manner. And uh, it absolutely involves, you know, it, ha- it has to involve a lot of people and the entirety of the community.
0: I appreciate your perspective on that. And uh, I have to say, I, I completely agree with you after looking at so much of the the debate this year on public lands and uh, wildfire management and on all of the natural disasters that we've seen. I think it, it does work in runners favor, uh, not just in their favor, but everyone's favor to uh, work a little bit more in a concerted fashion to um, work against climate change and saving our public lands. I think (laughs) we, as runners, we understand how beautiful they are. We understand how much they give back to the community. Um, Jason, I have one more question for you before we wrap up today. And I want you to imagine you pick up the phone and you call yourself and you are talking to your 20 year old self about running. What would you tell your 20 year old self knowing what you now know?
1: Oh, it's easy. You don't know shit. Um, (laughs) So I started, I actually started coaching right around when I was 20. So it's actually pretty, pretty pertinent. And, um, I I actually thought that, that I, I, I knew a lot. Um, and I had good reason to think I knew a lot, you know, I had a, you know, biochemistry degree from Texas A&M university. I studied a lot of exercise physiology there. I knew, you know, I could draw the you know, the Krebs cycle and the freaking molecular structures behind all the different points within the Krebs cycle. And, you know, I ran for, you know, good coaches in college and I was a good student of the sport. You know, I had all the training books that, you know, I kind of read over, over and over and over. I had a USA, uh, track and field, you know, level one certification, which is, that's really young to have a, to have an NGB certification. I had a USA cycling, uh, coaching certification. I also had a USA, uh, triathlon, coaching certification so I did everything I mean I had the education I had the personal background and stuff like that but when I walked into the to 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 the company that I work for now and the job uh job that I had now one of the really fortunate things that I had at my uh that, that I had at my disposal was coaches and physiologists that had worked for decades with the best of the best and at, at the at the Olympic level in all sports, running, cycling, and are all endurance sports. Running and cycling and triathlon. Well, actually, all Olympic sports. Some of the physiologists that I work with worked across the spectrum. Um, and what what I learned very very quickly is that despite <laughs> despite my best efforts and trying to educate myself, you know, with training books and training knowledge and going to all the national governing bodies and having a formalized education and being an athlete for, you know, all of my adult life, I didn't know anything. And they, the the collective group of them wasn't just one or two people, the collective group of them, I was very fortunate that they kind of took me under their wings and they taught me uh, just a, tr- a tremendous amount, not only about the sport itself, but also how to learn about it uh, for kind of future reference because it's not like I would have you know, access to them uh, forever. Eddie Coyle, for, for example, who's, who's now passed away, uh, taught us a lot of things about physiology, but also taught us a lot of things about how to, how to further your knowledge uh, in coaching and, and in sports science when you have to do it on your own. So when I kind of look when I kind of look back on it, um, I was lucky in a lot of ways to 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 have that experience. I definitely I definitely took advantage of that luck, um, uh, to uh, the, as 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 much as I could, and I, I, I do continue to do so. But going into that situation, literally as a as a twenty year old, as you mentioned there I had no concept of what I didn't know. no no concept uh, a, at all, so I would definitely tell myself that just remember you don't know much. You might have tried a lot to get the knowledge that you have, but you don't know Jack
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's always tricky when you don't even know what you don't know. Oh, uh, I know I said that was my last question, but you know you you mentioned uh, these great collection of coaches. They helped you learn more about the sport, and they also helped you learn how to learn about the sport I was wondering you know if someone's listening to this uh, and and I'm asking for myself as well you know how how do how does anybody really get more educated about the sport of running? What are some of your favorite resources, whether that is, you know, potentially getting coaching experience or getting a USA track and field coaching certification or books or what What do you look for when it comes to educating yourself about the sport of running?
1: Well, I so I'll, I'll take you through my framework. And then if if, if you want me to opine on what I would say not to do i can certainly do that but my, my framework honestly it's kind of crazy how how it's how it's changed over the years is i follow the right physiologists on twitter and and that's hard to do that's hard to, it's hard to find the right the right people to uh to follow and i will pick up on topics that they are having conversations about and i'll essentially I'll essentially aggregate them in a, in a unit for myself to explore more. So if I see you know, something that came out in the last 18 months or 24 months or something like that is this whole concept of red. So re- relative energy deficiency in sport that that is kind of been pioneered by the Australian Institute for Sport. So that started to come out. So what what I did is I just pulled off of all of those threads and then I did a deeper dive within the literature itself and kind of aggregated all of that information almost in like a self-study unit and went through it all and sometimes that that manifests into a continuing education that I that I'll put on for our coaches or that I'll assign to another coach to put out but it really is interestingly enough kind of starts with Twitter and just following the right people on Twitter and then just going going down the proverbial rabbit hole from there what I, what I have steered away from and I actually think this is important because I it, some of this is just where I'm at in my career. So I, I don't know if I would discourage everybody from, from doing these things. But I don't put a lot of stock into the NGB certifications anymore. They've gotten better uh, over the years. But I don't find a lot of utility in them for coaches that uh, coaches that have, that have been around a while. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in lay publications. Um, uh, the... Outside magazines, with all due respect, to Alex Hutchinson, who's who, who's a great writer, but a lot of that research that he's pulling up is just stuff that we're already familiar with. Uh, the late publications like Writers World and Trail Runner, and you know things like that, I don't I, I don't find any any utility in those uh, those sorts of things. So it kind of literally just comes back to following the right following the right people, and then diving down you know diving down those topics.
0: Yeah, you found what works for you, and he, it's funny. I have used Twitter so much for learning about new new topics, connecting with people. It is such a great tool for learning and it's it's crazy. surprising.
1: It's it's crazy. You know, I used to have <clears throat> I used to have like three or four interns come in at a time. And like 70% of what I would have them do is just pull journals you know just pull journals and organize them into topics and then we kind of we lay them out all out this is like you know kind of in the early you know in the early days of electronic storage but we'd lay them out all out on a table and we'd pick the topics that were the most relevant we'd pull those topics out and do another dive you know from those and that process is, has been large this process it took like three or four people has largely been replaced by just like five five Kind of finding the right people on Twitter, then you still have to go and you have to do your research and actually know what you're reading and what you're diving into. That's kind of where I think the the magic of it is because you just can't take the 200. How many characters is Twitter now? 240.
0: So um, like, anyway, yeah, I think it might yeah, be
1: 280. Yeah, whatever. However many characters that they're allotted, you can't just take that and run with it because there's not enough. There's obviously not enough room for the detail, but as a as a as a genesis for where where to go, it's not a bad, like I said, it's not it's not a bad place.
0: No, it's it's not. And and that suggestion by itself is probably worth the cost of admission to this podcast episode, which yeah. which was free by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get what you pay for. I <laughs> actually actually I have been, I would say the last four out of the last five uh, high level uh, training presentations that I've been to at the, at the end of the presentation, part of the references has been, here's who to follow on Twitter. I love it. It's it's hilarious. It's like, here's here's the team for this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It gives you kind of a, Uh, An ability to peek over the shoulder of a physiologist, a physiotherapist, all these different people who are publishing research or studies or uh, just working with athletes on on a day-to-day basis. It allows you to see what they're working on, how they're thinking about different topics. And it really is such a great tool for self-study. that. You know, I, I would I would definitely recommend anybody who wants to learn about a specific topic, use Twitter, follow the right people, and you know, after a while you're gonna know a lot more.
1: Well, the right people is the clutch part of it because the kind of the counterbalance to that or the unfortunate part of it of it is is it's it's hard if you don't have a really solid knowledge set to begin with to determine the experts from the pseudo experts. And there, there are there are a lot of pseudo experts uh, on on Twitter. So we kind of trivialize that first step into following the the right emphasis uh, on that word, the right uh, uh, people on Twitter. And that's act, that, that's actually a little bit of an exercise that that takes some expertise. And for, fortunately, though, if you find like if you know like one or two good people, like I've had people ask me this a lot, like who who do you follow? And I just give them a list. You know, these are the. 10 or 20 people that I think you should start out with. So um, anyway, there is a little bit of caveat to that is you do have to kind of get to the right people. Otherwise, you end up having a lot of nonsense, which the world needs less of. (laughs) That's for sure.
0: All right, Jason, this has been really informative for me. It's always fun to to talk with other coaches and and hear about how they think about things. Uh, I think I'll be uh, looking through all of your Twitter follows after this to see who (laughs) some of these people are. Uh, But thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun to talk training.
0: Hey, it's Jason again. And before you go, I just want to give you a quick reminder that Inside Tracker is generously offering 200 bucks off their ultimate tier of their blood testing service with code STRENGTHRUNSPECIAL. They test over 40 biomarkers, like various stress hormones, to determine if you're training too hard, too little, or you have any physiological weaknesses that can be remedied by either diet exercise, or a difference in your lifestyle. So in other words, you learn about problems that have actionable solutions. And for any runner who wants every advantage to see what they're truly capable of achieving, Inside Tracker is a great option for taking a peek under the hood and seeing how your engine is running. Use code STRENGTHRUNSPECIAL until the end of November to claim your savings. And I hope you learn something new, something interesting, or perhaps something surprising about your own body. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be in touch soon.